0: From Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sharino,
1: and in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal,
0: and this is the Vine Pair Podcast Friday edition. I'm losing track of time here.
1: <laughs>
0: what have you been up to? What have you been reading?
1: Yeah, well, on the on the subject of losing track of time, <laughs> someone once coined the term that uh, August is the Sunday Scaries of an entire month. Oh my god, Or is god, it the it's month so of Sunday right. Scaries, and I kind of <laughs> I kind of dig those vibes, although. You know, it's a little different for me because uh, I am desperately looking forward to uh, my children going back to school. But sure. um, you know, <laughs> it is it is definitely a, a, a month where you're always. I think every time August comes, you're just like, "Holy fuck, it's August! How about yeah. that, huh?" So yeah. Um, but what have I been reading? So you know, as always, lots of fun things on the site, um, including something I think we'll touch on today's topic. But I'm actually going to talk about a different piece that I thought was a really interesting. One of these, one of these pieces that runs on the site that tackled the question that I I sort of have engaged with a lot of times, but not thought of in exactly the way that the uh, writer put it, and that's Rich Manning's piece called uh, "Precision versus Character," or column stills actually worse than pot stills. Sure, and I think in that piece, Rich gets gets at a almost reflexive instinct in a lot of the spirits community, which is, well, of course, a pot still is better because it produces less predictable more variable outcomes. Right. And I think that like in a way for a certain kind of drinker, yeah, that might be true. Like if you're if if part of the joy for you in spirits is is that variation, right? The fact that, you know, each individual barrel of, you know, whiskey can be a little different based on, you know, exactly the distillation run and the uh, amount of time in barrel and the specific characteristics of the barrel and all that. But that like Focusing on that as sort of the the height of, you know, distilling quality and of, like, the, the p- best spirits have to come off a pot still because they have to have that level of variability is maybe both a very kind of, like, it's one very specific kind of niche argument and also doesn't really, leaves a lot of people out of the conversation because, mm-hmm. like, A, column stills are really necessary for certain kinds of spirits that are quite delicious, like, say, gin, but also, like, to have product available for people like the, the the amount of spirit that the world wants to drink cannot be produced on pot stills alone. So, and it's It's not just like a romantic
0: idea, right? Yeah.
1: -hmm. yeah. And I mean, I think generally this podcast is a pro romance side when it comes to the spirits or to the drinks industry, but it, it has to be leavened with some practicality. So I thought it was a good piece that kind of took both approaches, both types of distilling technology and really gave them Credit where it was due and talked about some of the shortcomings in both cases, as opposed to just sort of holding up one as the paragon and one as the like, ugh, you know, the evils of industrialization. Necessary.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a good piece, too.
1: How about you? What uh, What's particularly caught your fancy?
0: Yeah, a piece from Maggie Hennessy. It titled The Timeless Charm of Cheap Chianti, um, <laughs> I thought was really great. Kind of talks about the this nostalgia that she has for the uh, Chianti, like house, like table wine Chianti that she grew up mm-hmm. having um, at the, you know, very generic Italian-American restaurants in Chicago and I just thought this this piece really spoke to me because I have those memories myself. Even just, um, you know, in my grandparents' house growing up, like that, the bottle in the basket. It's called the fiasco? I that know. was something I did not know. Did you know that? I did. Really interesting. Um, but yeah, that just like big bottle of Chianti and that special bottle. Um, yeah, and how, you know... she thought for such a long time that she had a, you know, a very specific palate or her palate wasn't refined enough because she liked this type of wine um, and has, you know, learned to appreciate different wines, but just holds a soft spot for this type of Chianti. And I I just really love this piece. I thought it was so fun.
1: Yeah. And and again, almost, you know, touches on this element of its own kind of romantic notion of wine, which is less about, you know, the sort of like, uh, rarefied air of the finest wines in the world, but of this like inextricable place that wine has at the table, not just in Italy, of course, but like, you know, no, I don't know if there's any other cuisine in the world that has wine like as inextricably linked with it as uh, Italian food and wine, um, you know. French, maybe? Eh, but even then, um, the, the, this is not really the point of this conversation, but like, no. <laughs> <clears throat> the French love wine obviously there's a lot of drinking wine and eating food and and much of Europe this is true i don't mean to say that like italy somehow stands deeply apart but i think the best way i've ever you know the best way i've ever kind of heard to think of it apparently this is just a podcast where i repeat adages people have told me is that like the italians <laughs> treat wine like a condiment like in other mm-hmm. words often the food almost needs the wine to be complete in a way that i think is less true for like say french cuisine in general
0: yeah i think that makes sense to me so i like this piece yeah So we wanted to discuss kind of the timelessness maybe of the Aperol Spritz or perhaps the staying power of the Mm -hmm. Aperol Spritz and um, why it's found such popularity and doesn't seem to be going away. Um, This idea kind of came out of a, a piece that we ran on the site from Brad Thomas Parsons about the, you know, Aperol Spritz as a getaway drink for people visiting Italy and the piece is totally different from that but just um you know there is something about the Aperol Spritz that it seems to have risen in popularity in I don't know when Zach the last decade more recently than that
1: yeah I mean that's it like not like maybe the last seven eight years but I mean that's kind of parsing a little fine
0: yeah (laughs) um and so yeah I I thought this was a Something that we could discuss, and uh, if we if we think that there's ever going to be another spritz that could topple the Apérol spritz, what do you think?
1: So I think that there's two major challenges or two two ways in which the Apérol spritz has so effectively kind of boxed out the competition, and one of them is just the very very effective marketing efforts of and Campari in like getting of like seeing I think pretty early on that there was you know a lot of interest in the Aperol Spritz that it was becoming a a trendy drink and really planting a flag there and being like you know we are owning this drink obviously it has Aperol in it which is a product that they make and so it's an easy product an easy drink to own in a certain way because it has your name in it but really and and really just kind of like making it so that for a lot of the people who enjoy an aperol spritz it's almost unthinkable to have something else besides yeah. aperol be that a different product that has similar characteristics or even just a different liqueur and i think we'll talk about that in a minute but like so so on the one hand they've sort of grabbed hold of that piece of it and i think the other part of it that's really made it pop is it just looks right Like the 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 visual appeal of the drink, I think cannot be undersold. In the same way that, and I think there's a lot of similarities. In the same way that, like the slightly previous rose craze was so much about the wine, yes, but also about the way it looked in the glass and the way Mm -hmm. you looked holding it and the way it photographed and the way it just kind of all came together. And there's something about these, like almost like this, you know, kind of range of shades of color in a drink that i think is really i don't know it just it it is appealing to people beyond the flavor i think there's there's a visual appeal to the drink and you know the Aperol spritz is a you know big ass wine glass full of ice and yep. you know that kind of reddish orangeish salmonish hue and usually there's a big old slice of orange in it and like it looks like a very you look the kind of carefree that none of us truly are but all want to be when you're holding it and that is i think a huge point in the drinks favor.
0: <laughs> yeah, i think you know just i was thinking that the this idea that it's served in the wine glass makes and not in like a collins glass or something mm-hmm. like other long drinks um sets it apart and i do think that makes it more appealing to people. Um i also think that you know like you said th- the aperol spritz kind of became popular at a time where the like a spritz at all like it it made the category of like a spritz drink what it is today so much so that Mm -hmm. I think people cannot you know extricate Aperol from it (laughs) right like I think if you even just said spritz people would assume you're talking about an Aperol spritz
1: yeah or at, at a minimum you have to be very explicit about why it's not Aperol
0: sure yeah.
1: And I think that that is yeah, that's that's, a again, a big credit to I mean, it's not untrue that that drink is has its own popularity, you know, widely served in northern Italy, in particular, like, you know, in Venice and Milan and places where there's a lot of tourism and people go and, and <laughs> you know, some of the the tradition was certainly brought over here. But I also think that another piece of it, and I'm curious if you agree with this, is I think I think of the rise of the spritz as also being an outgrowth of like. Brunch culture. You know, like the mimosa was obviously in remains a very popular drink and was sort of the like f- one of those drinks that kind of was very close, is wasn't as very closely associated with a meal brunch, but also the kind of like again, a, a sort of small luxury, maybe the only kind of luxury that most people can afford themselves these days. Um, and has with and with that becomes this important. Like, the okay, this is going to be a little bit of a stretch, so bear with me here. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, we have seen an, a kind of continual effort on the part of certain, whether they're brands, whether they're restaurants and bars, et cetera, to kind of push this very European idea of whether you call it, uh, you know, aperitivo hour or yeah. apéro as the French would call it, or whatever, this idea of kind of like the drink or two at like, I don't know, 3.30 to 5.30 ish you know, kind of the like, yeah, no one really wants to be working right now, you know, I guess happy hour in American parlance, but like, Mm -hmm. with a slightly different bent to it, I think, where it's really about like, you're relaxing, you're like, you know, kind of just like, it's like, you know, you're you're on the glide path to dinner (laughs) every day of the week. And I think that, you know, there's a way in which that the sort of How much is this the sort of like combination of like people working remotely more a lot of just kind of like people's lives being a little less lived in their office buildings has given space for these kinds of drinks to become more and more popular because they are kind of a way you can have a drink or two in the mid to late afternoon without getting like wasted. You know, an Aperol Spritz is not a high proof drink. It's sparkling wine and Aperol, which is itself relatively low in alcohol, and so you're not really going to get, like, wasted at five, but you feel like you're having something fun. You're yeah. doing something that feels maybe even a, just the tiniest bit transgressive. You know, if it's, the ne- if it's summer, you're sitting maybe outside on a patio or something like that, and, like, all of that is really appealing, and maybe it's a kind of drinking occasion that maybe was less viable 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, I, I think even if it's whatever even if it's just on the weekend that you're doing these things yeah. and that is possible i i think it it's a drink that makes sense for that occasion i think it's something that is you know not hard to make at home um yeah. and but it's more complex and it's something you know more than just a glass of sparkling wine mm-hmm. um like you're making a cocktail but it's very easy to make it's a very easy equation or formula to remember um and yeah it feels it feels different and some i think p- perhaps at first felt some somewhat exotic mm-hmm. and um and the other thing is yeah like in terms of the flavor profile you know it's kind of close to that mimosa but not quite like it's got some of those similar flavors but again it's more complex and so you could feel kind of fancier drinking it or you know more sophisticated drinking it Um, So I think, yeah, it just, it has a lot going for it. And I agree that it was just marketed perfectly, right? Like expertly. Um, And so, yeah, I think I don't, I don't see it going away um, unless something like really awful happened to Aperol.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think the other piece of it is that not only does it sort of have an air of sophistication that maybe the mimosa doesn't quite and it's been very well marketed but i also think it sort of has a, a the exact kind of flavor profile that maybe this is a little bit what you were getting at that like yes it's got some you know kind of citrus and you know rhubarb notes and things like that but also some bitterness and we've yeah. seen a kind of increased interest in that but it's it's still a but not too very much. yeah it's a very approachable liqueur yeah. mm-hmm. and all of those things make it like yeah, it's a drink where you feel sophisticated enough drinking it, but yet almost anyone you give it to will be at least somewhat happy with it. Like, it is a drink with, a, I think, I'm sure a very low rejection like level.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we like other spritzes, too. So yeah. I'm curious what kind of spritz you've prepared for yourself today, Zach.
1: Okay. So. I thought a lot about this, maybe more than I should (laughs) have. And I think that as I was saying before, one of the challenges, if you're going to pitch me or I'm going to pitch you all something to not replace, but just compete a little bit with the Aperol Spritz is I think it has to both take on the Aperol Spritz in certain important ways. Like it has to do some of what an Aperol Spritz does, Mm -hmm. but it also has to do some things that an Aperol Spritz does not. And so one of them is like i said i think it has to look visually appealing so to me that immediately rules out amaro as an ingredient like i like an amaro and in the spritz but like it all looks like dirty water like you just can't really avoid that and (laughs) i'm fine with that but it's not going to photograph well people are not going to feel cool or sophisticated sitting there drinking it so it has to be a it has to look pretty in the glass so there are you know range of options i also think it has to look clearly like i'm not using a like a light colored or clear liqueur here. Cause again, then it just kind of looks like you put a bunch of ice in your sparkling wine. And like, are you just kind of that person? And you know, most people (laughs) don't want to be that person. And I think the, the last point that I thought a lot about is I think where this space exists is like a more premium version of a spritz, because if you're going to knock the Aperol spritz for anything, and to be clear, these are not, like criticisms that I myself am going to levy. Exactly, I'm just going to, you know, sort of float them. You know, it's kind of a cheap drink, and that's why it's been so popular because it's, you know, generally like inexpensive prosecco and apérol, which is not a super expensive liqueur, which is great. It's part of what's made it so popular. It's like exactly you can you can sell it for ten bucks as a restaurant and turn some kind of profit. You can sell it for fifteen bucks in New York and turn more of a profit, um, etc. But Because I do think there is space kind of in the premium uh, range. I am going to pitch you, I don't have a name for it. Maybe you, Joanna, or maybe you, the listeners, can help me with this. But my spritz is green chartreuse and champagne. Wow. And (laughs) I think there's some space here. It's a little more like green chartreuse, pretty drink or pretty color, looks really good when um, sort of slightly diluted with sparkling wine. And here you have, you know, the sort of cachet and air of sophistication of champagne. Plus of course, green chartreuse, which may be only trendy with sort of more, co- with more sort of spirits geeks, but is trendy. Uh, if you can find it, I guess yeah. that is maybe the one <laughs> challenge, expensive. but you know, we'll see. And like, maybe this is like the $20 spritz. Plus it's just delicious. I like both these ingredients. So seemed I've like a good fit for me.
0: Never tried it. Is it, is it good? I, I mean, I,
1: I'm, I haven't tasted it yet. I'm waiting, oh, Joanna. You oh. have to tell me about yours first.
0: Okay. Well, I didn't think as hard about this. Uh, <laughs> you
1: did clearly
0: because this is a spritz I've had before, and it's a amaro based. So there goes uh, points in it against it. But I have a that's Chinar. just
1: my theory. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't promise that that's actually true.
0: Okay. Okay. This is a Chinar spritz, and I do think even though it's brownish, you know, it can have. Some olives in it, like Castle Vitrano olives, and a lemon wedge. That still makes it, you know, nice looking. Mm. But it's like basically, the savory spritz. Yeah, yeah. But basically, just swaps chinar in for apérol. Similar uh, recipe, otherwise, with prosecco and some sparkling water. So that's my spritz.
1: Okay. Well, let's do it. Let's do a little uh, taste test here. I'm going to have yeah. mine.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. And. I mean, good.
1: That's damn tasty. Now, I will be <laughs> honest. I don't tend to put soda water in my spritzes. Yeah. Um. I tend to just just use spirit sure. and mm-hmm. uh, sparkling wine. So, you know, you definitely get a little more kind of punch that way, but less volume. But, um, I think it. I think it. I don't know. I. I. I think if you, you. I mean, I guess this is kind of an obvious thing to say, but like, if you like green chartreuse, you will like this drink a lot. I mean. It, it, I think it you know it's kind of a nice lightish shade of green. It's maybe not quite as alluring as the Aperol whatever color we're gonna call it. Um but it's like somewhat pretty. I don't mm-hmm. know. I like it. What do you how is how is your how is your artichoke spritz?
0: It's good. It's I've yeah, this is a drink I've made before and enjoy often, so I feel like this is a yeah, it's a, a little bit I don't know. If you like chinar you would like this drink. <laughs> um, but yes, it, it's good. It's not quite as um, more herbal. It's more herbal, not quite as sweet, I think, as the Aperol. But I also think that's just a matter of how you make any of these, right? Like, I think another part of the appeal of an Aperol spritz is kind of you can put more Aperol in it. You can put less. You can put more Prosecco. You could put no soda water. Yeah. Um, and that's that's why it's also a great drink a good template um so don't you do you feel like you lose the champagne though or you could do it with Prosecco probably
1: well so to me the argument for champagne is really part just aesthetic like you know it just I'm I don't know I'm sticking with I mean could you use a Cremant or something and get the same effect sure obviously yeah. I do think that texturally the drink is a little different because you have a little bit more intensity of effervescence from mm. you know from the champagne and you know, is that really a big deal when you're putting in ice cubes and stuff? Probably not. Like, (laughs) am I maybe talking myself into this, I guess, a little, but I do think that there is, you know, I guess, like I said, I think if you're, if you're designing something that is like, oh, I think this product could succeed, or this drink could succeed at taking some some t- you know some portion of the apérol Spritz's market, you kind of have to look at ways to differentiate yourself. That this is how I looked at this. Yeah. I also think that the other thing that's like certainly true is I do think um, even if we are still. even if the sort of spritz category is heavily dominated by the Aperol spritz, it has created space. I have seen, you know, some bars and restaurants with, you know, a spritz menu, right? And you've got your Aperol spritz, but you've got a handful of others, including possibly Chinar, possibly, you know, other Amari, other, you know, Italian or other European herbal liqueurs or or domestic or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it has at least kind of, even if, even if it takes up a lot of the market share, it has also created this space for people that are like, oh, yeah, I like an Aperol spritz. But maybe today I feel like I want to try, you know, a different flavored liqueur from wherever. But I know that if it's mixed with, you know, if it's served in a big wine glass with ice, Prosecco and some soda water or whatever, I'm going to probably like it because I like that vibe, yeah. even if the drink is slightly different. And that, I think, is, you know, something that that has helped create some market for some of these other spirits that, that might have found it might have it's given them another lifeline in a way or lifelines are put, right, but there's another way into bars and into people's, you know, homes that as opposed to just as a cocktail, or well, it's a cocktail obviously, but as an ingredient in a different kind of cocktail, right? Um, you know, you're not just kind of bound by the strictures of kind of classic cocktail making.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is your baller spritz.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm I going to work on a French name for it. I think it needs to have a something vague. That sounds at least, you know, French. And, and it would be fitting, you know, the, the French and the Italians have a, just a wee rivalry when it comes to, well, <laughs> most everything. So, True. <laughs> um you know, it would make sense if they would. The problem is, like, the Chartreuse monks are not really interested in, uh, right. like, competing. So <laughs> good for them. You know, just keep doing your thing, uh, fellas. And uh, hopefully we get a little more Chartreuse in the market eventually. Yes. But... Uh, I do want to hear from listeners, of course, if you've got favorite other spritzes or either of these, if you were like, oh, I tried it or I want to yes. try it, but just let us know podcast dot pair.com. It's always fun to hear what y'all think of what we think.
0: Yes. Let us know if you've made Zach's $50 spritz it's and 50. Uh, <laughs> uh, Zach, I will talk to you on Monday. Sounds great.